Well, good morning. Good morning. If you're, if you're new to Cornerstone, my name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a pleasure to get to share God's word with you this morning. We got any kids out there? If you're a kid, let me hear you. Right on, right on. We've got first grade and up in here with us today. And tomorrow night for Christmas Eve, we're going to have everybody, babies to old people, all together in the room to celebrate Jesus' birth together. Just a reminder, tomorrow night, 3.30, tomorrow afternoon, rather, 3.30 and 5 o'clock is our Christmas Eve service. It's an all-age service. It tends to be that the first one's packed. So if at all possible, I'd love for those of you that call Cornerstone home, leave some room for guests, leave some room for people to be here at 3.30 and consider coming to the 5 o'clock, if you will. But I am excited because Christmas is only two days away. Who's excited that Christmas is two days away? Right on. Who still has a lot to get done in the next two days? Yeah, me too. I, I love Christmas, you guys. I, I've always loved it. I love the, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the songs, the spirit of Christmas. That's a phrase we hear a lot at Christmas time, isn't it? Christmas spirit. But what does it mean? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to ask the question, what is the true spirit of Christmas? Oftentimes when we use that phrase, Christmas spirit, sometimes people use it to talk about just some way that we ought to feel at this time of year, that we should just be happy and joyful and, and more excited to give things to others than to get for ourselves. And if for some reason we're not feeling that way, if we're not feeling particularly joyful we feel like somehow we're doing this whole Christmas thing wrong, right? Let me, let me give you an illustration of this. How many of you guys have seen this movie? Who is that? That's Buddy. That's Buddy the Elf, right? Okay, so great movie, hilarious. I love it. My family and I, we've watched it, I think, three times already this month. But let me ask you this question. In the movie Elf, fictitious movie, in the movie Elf, what makes Santa's sleigh fly? Christmas spirit. But one of the th things you find out very early on in the movie is that Santa's sleigh needs a jet engine attached to it to help it out because there's not enough Christmas spirit, right? But according to that movie, Christmas spirit basically just means people believing in Santa so that his sleigh can fly. Is that what Christmas spirit is all about? See, this is where many Christians will chime in and say no, and we'll usually say something like this. Jesus is the reason for the season. We put signs in our yards. We wear shirts that say it. We get coffee mugs that say it. We have pillows that say it. We put bumper stickers on our cars that say it. And it's true. Jesus is the reason for the season. Even though, think about this for a second, even though we actually don't know the day or even really the time of year that Jesus was born, for at least the last 1,700 years, Christians have been celebrating December 25th as the day to remember the miracle of Jesus' birth. That Jesus is God who became a man. Think about that. The one who made us became one of us so that he might grow up and suffer and die and rise again to rescue us from our sin, to bring us back from our separation from God. That is such good news, amen? But what are we supposed to do with that news? 
Like, think about this. Is it enough just to remember that Jesus is the reason for the season? Is it enough simply to decorate your house and yourself with something that says, think about this. Is it enough to celebrate Jesus, or celebrate Christmas the way that I want with the people that I want to get what I want? As long as from time to time we throw up a quick, hey, yo, Jesus, thanks for being born. Is that what all that Christmas spirit is about? Just remembering Jesus? I would say no. Listen, I'm going to read, I'm going to read this quote to you from a guy named J.I. Packer, where he talks about this idea of what Christmas spirit should be about. Listen to what he says. He says, we talk glibly, like in a throwaway sense of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning anything more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. He's British, so he uses words like jollity that we don't typically use. But he says this, the phrase should in fact carry a tremendous weight of meaning. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper or attitude of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all year round. Now there's some big words in there and words we don't use that often, but I hope you get his main point. His main point is to say that to celebrate Christmas with the proper spirit means to seek to do for others what Jesus has done for us. It's like the verse that the Ekman family read for us just a little bit ago. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this isn't just something that we do at Christmas time. This should be the mark of followers of Jesus all year round. But did you catch one little thing that Packer said in this, this quote? That Jesus became poor? You ever thought of that before? That Jesus, in coming to this earth, and being born to the Virgin Mary, became poor. This, this idea comes from a verse, something that Paul wrote in the book of 2 Corinthians. For those of you kids that are in here or that are new with us this morning, for the last couple of months, we've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. Right now, we've, we're stopped right about the beginning of chapter 7. But what I want to do this morning is actually jump ahead and look at something that Paul writes in the middle part of chapter 8. Take a look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, by his poorness, might become rich. This is the main verse we're going to look at this morning, and I want us to ask four questions from it. Here they are. From this verse, what does it mean that Jesus was rich? And then if, if he was rich, what does it mean that he became poor? And especially, how does Jesus becoming poor make us rich? What kind of richness is he talking about? And then lastly, what does it mean for us to celebrate Christmas in that spirit, to treat others with that same spirit? Does that make sense where we're going? All right, so 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Let's look at the first question. What does it mean that Jesus was rich? Well, I think what Paul is talking about here is the reality that we learn from the Bible that Jesus' life didn't begin that first Christmas morning. In fact, we learn from the Bible that Jesus' life, I guess in a sense, didn't ever begin at all. Because at the beginning of everything that is, Jesus was already there. He wasn't called Jesus yet. 
That was the name that Joseph gave him at his birth. But from all of eternity, he has been known as the Son of God. The eternal Son of God, existing equal in glory and honor with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in that reality that's hard for us to wrap our minds around called the Trinity. But that's who Jesus is and was long before he was the baby in the manger. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that all things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, all of it has been created by Jesus and for him. So, when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that Jesus was rich before he was born, he means it in every way possible. Jesus was rich in possessions, in stuff, because literally everything that exists belongs to him. He was rich in power because he made everything. And Hebrews 1 tells us that he, by his power, holds everything together. He was rich in glory because for all of eternity, he has been with the Father and the Holy Spirit, surrounded by the angels of heaven who are constantly shouting out how great he is. That's what it means that Jesus was rich. But what does it mean that Jesus became poor? Well, Paul explains this in another passage he wrote in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, where he talks about the fact that though Jesus was rich, though he was equal with God, he did not count his equality, his equalness with God, as a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now just that, just God becoming man is a huge lowering of himself. Even if Jesus had come as the most powerful, most rich, all-powerful king that the world has ever seen, that still would have been so much lower than one who was equal with God. Think about this. Jesus didn't just become man. He went even lower. Look at what it says in, in the next part of this passage. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the lowest, most shameful death, death on a cross. Jesus became poor, not just in comparison to who he was as one equal with God, but even compared to other people of his day. Listen to the way another scholar, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, describes this. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ exchanged the throne of glory for a manger borrowed from animals. That manger wasn't his. When he was presented in the temple... His parents could only afford the offering made by the poor. He said himself that he had no place to lay his head. His only possession of any worth, of any value when he died, was a seamless robe someone had lovingly made for him. He was buried in a borrowed grave. Yes, he became poor to make us rich. Guys, that's the amazing humbling gift of Christmas. That is the, as he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The kindness from God that we did not deserve and could not earn is that Jesus made himself poor 
so that we might become rich. Now understand this, because this is really important. Paul's not talking about money here. When he talks about Jesus making us rich, he's not talking about getting lots of fancy cars and money and nice homes and having the latest and greatest everything. There are far too many so-called Christian preachers who say that, and it is a flat-out lie. But what is he talking about? Because he does say that Jesus came to make us rich. So our third question, how does Jesus becoming poor make us rich? What kind of riches is he talking about? Well, Jesus' poorness makes us rich. First off, how does that work? Is because though Jesus became poor, he didn't stay that way. If we keep reading in Philippians 2, look what Paul says. Therefore, because Jesus was obedient and humbled himself to the point of death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? All the riches and glory and power that he shared with the Father before he was born, Jesus has now received back again. And according to this verse, One day, every knee will bow down before him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord, even those who refuse to follow him now. But they will be forced to their knees. They will be forced to confess that Jesus truly is Lord and King just before they are ushered off to their eternal doom of separation from God and all that's good. Guys, this is why it is so important that we learn to trust Jesus now, today, because he is coming back. And that is good news for those who bow the knee to Jesus now. That is terrifying news to those who refuse to bow until that day. But understand this. That poor baby in the manger that we celebrate at Christmas time, that poor man on the cross, that we honor on Good Friday is now the infinitely rich, infinitely glorious King of heaven and earth. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is poor no more. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus made himself poor So that after his death and resurrection, when the Father exalted him back to that place of richness and glory, he might bring us with him. Look at the way Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He talks about riches. Here we're getting to the, what does it mean that we become rich? But God, being rich in mercy, in kindness that we don't deserve, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, following Jesus 
is about something so much more than some get-rich-quick scheme, way to get a lot of good stuff in this life. It's about experiencing the riches of the grace and kindness of God for all eternity. On the cross, Jesus took on all the hatred of humanity. He took on all the wrath of God that our sins deserved so that those who believe might experience kindness from God forever. That's why Christmas is such a big deal. We don't get rich in money and stuff and cars. We're not guaranteed power or influence in this life. But for those who humbly receive this amazing gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, we are rich in the grace and kindness of God, and we will experience that forever. What does that have to do with Christmas, though? Like, what does that have to do with this whole idea of Christmas spirit? How should this reality that Jesus made himself poor so that through his poorness he might bring us into the riches of God's grace with us, with him, what difference should that make in how we celebrate Christmas and how we live the rest of the year too? Well, again, this isn't talking about money and houses and clothes. It's talking about being made rich in God's grace, in forgiveness, in love, in eternal life with God. So for those who follow Jesus, who have received those riches, how should this change the way that we use the rest of the stuff that we have? How should this shape the way we use our houses and money and stuff and even stuff that you might unwrap in a couple of days? What should we do with it? What should drive us? Well, first, let's talk about what we shouldn't do. Before... I read you a little quote from J.I. Packer. I'm going to read you what he goes on to say. There's a part of it I'll put up on the screen, but just listen to this first. He says, It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I will be more specific, so many of the Christians with the best theology go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? The man falls in among robbers. They beat him up and leave him for dead on the road. And a priest and Levite come by and they make sure to go around. He says, too often that's the way that Christians act. We see human needs all around us, but after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, we turn our eyes and pass by on the other side. This is not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, and there are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian or non-Christian, to get on by themselves. He wrote that in 1973. Doesn't seem any less relevant today. Here's what he says right after that. He says, the Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, of spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems need. He finishes by saying, there are not as many who show this spirit as there should be. 
But if God in mercy revives us, one of the things he will do will be to work more of this spirit into our hearts and lives. That's kind of convicting, isn't it? The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob, but in those who, like their master, spend our lives to spend and be spent to bless others. If hearing that convicts you, if that convicts you that that you've been too focused on yourself, on your family, on your comfort, don't just stay convicted. Think about this. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stay concerned with his own comfort? Aren't you glad that he was willing to make himself very uncomfortable to bring you forgiveness and the riches of grace? Then let that gladness drive you to follow his example. I'm not trying to guilt trip you into giving more. I'm trying to glad trip you. I'm trying to say, let the welling up of joy at the grace and kindness that God has shown you cause you to follow his example. Let the reality that you are rich in Jesus Christ cause you to live like it. Live like you have riches of grace and kindness to bless others with. Look again at the beginning of of 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The people who live this way are those who have experienced God's grace. If you have experienced God's grace through Jesus Christ in your life, you don't just receive it. You become a channel of that grace to others. You pass it on. But the flip side is also true. If you really struggle and bristle against this idea of being generous and kind to others, have you actually experienced the grace of God? Listen listen to what Paul says about how this grace should change the way that those who are rich use their stuff. And when I say rich, understand that refers to many, if not most of us in here, especially in comparison to many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Look what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, As for the rich in this present age who have a lot of things, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud or stuck up, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Many of you know 10 years ago, it can be gone like that. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you see what he says we're supposed to do with the things that we have in our lives? We're supposed to enjoy them. God has given them to us richly to enjoy them. But how do we enjoy them? Look what he says right next. They are to do good. If they're rich in stuff, they should be rich in good works. To be generous, to be ready to share. That's how we enjoy what God has given us, is by recognizing he didn't just give it to us. He gave it to us to use to bring joy to others, to be rich in good works and ready to share. So that, he says, they may take hold of that which is truly life. Kids, I know some of you are really excited about those presents that are under the tree. That's all your hope is wrapped up there. But let me tell you right now, nothing 
wrapped up under your tree will give you that which is truly life. Nothing that's hidden somewhere in the house still needing to be wrapped up will give you that which is truly life. Nothing that is still on its way from Amazon and hopefully will be here by Tuesday (laughs) will give you that which is truly life. But experiencing God's grace through Jesus Christ and enjoying the gifts that he's given us by being generous and eager to share them, that's truly life. That's the true spirit of Christmas. And it's not just something that rich people get to do. We've been looking at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Did you know that in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul starts out by talking about a group of people who were very poor and very generous. I'm not that good in math, but something about that doesn't seem to add up to me. But look what he says. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. They experienced that grace through Jesus, and look what it did to them. For even in the midst of a really hard time, a severe test of of affliction, their abundance, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Guys, this is what God's grace does. It takes selfish people and turns us into joyful givers regardless of how much or how little we have. I love the way John Piper said it about this passage. He said, the motive for giving to any ministry is joy. Joy inspired by the grace of God. And when joy is there, even poverty can't stop the giving. I love that. So he follows up and he says, okay, if this is what the grace of God did with the Macedonians, you that live in Corinth or you that live in Simi Valley, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, by the eagerness of others to give, that your love also is genuine. Generosity, giving, is not a command, he says, but it is a test. It's a test of whether or not our love for others is genuinely the love of God working through us. Because as Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, that classic chapter about love, even if I give away everything that I have, but it's not motivated by love, I've gained nothing. It's not about how much you give, but is your your giving motivated by joy because of God's grace? Have you truly experienced the grace of Jesus? If you have, it will overflow in joyful giving to others. That's the true spirit of Christmas. Joyful, generous giving to those in need because that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen? So what do we do with this? All right, feel free. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Right on, man. What do we do with this? Let me give you a few thoughts. I wanted to break this down and make this very practical for us because it's not just what we do in the next two days matters, but the way that this fuels the rest of our year matters even more. So one thing I want to make sure you hear, you don't hear me wrongly on this. I'm not saying that it's wrong to give gifts to family and friends. Please don't hear that. But remember, the gift that Jesus gave us is that which we most needed but could not get for ourselves. So think about your giving. Think about those you've already planned to give to. Does most of your giving go to people who really could have just gotten it for themselves? 
Does most of your giving go to those from whom you can expect something in return? Who would God have you give to who couldn't return the favor? Who could you give to as an expression of the grace that God has shown you to someone who needs to experience that undeserved kindness? Think about even something that's not like a thing we give to someone, but but something like forgiveness. Maybe some of you will be getting together in a couple of days with family members and you know things are rocky between you. You kind of almost have made that list of acceptable topics you can bring up at Christmas dinner because it won't lead to a fight. Maybe for some of you, there, there's that, almost that added pain of knowing there's family that I don't even talk to anymore and we purposefully don't get together at Christmas because there's been a complete breakdown in that relationship. If you are a Christian, you have been shown grace from God that has completely covered your shame and your sin. You have been shown grace that has completely restored your relationship with God. You have been richly forgiven, and you know what that means? Whether you feel like it or not, you are rich in forgiveness. You're rich. You can give it freely because you've been given it freely. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 8. You have received freely, so give freely. You are rich in grace to show others. You don't have to ration it. You won't run out. You're rich. May the richness of the forgiveness that God has shown you lead you to be generous in forgiving with others and even to come humbly to ask for forgiveness for your part in the breakdown of that relationship. For others of you, you have homes and food and family that you can share with those, especially those who don't have that right now. One of the things my family, my wife and I love doing is on uh, her family's back east, and so some Christmases we're back there, sometimes we're here. And when we're here, well, my wife knows what it's like to celebrate Christmas without a lot of family around, so we look for people like that. We look for those who don't have family, who aren't going home for Christmas, and we say, come join us. Be a part of Christmas with us. I know many of you guys do that too, but I would say if you have an us for and no more mentality to Christmas, let the grace of God drive you to be generous and welcome others into the riches of family and relationship that you have to share. I know of one family who they, they take this idea of hospitality to a more literal extent of literally going to hospitals on Christmas Day. The wife at one point had spent Christmas in the hospital recovering from surgery and knows how weird it feels. Like nobody plans to be in the ER on Christmas Day. And if you are, it's a very anxious, nerve-wracking thing. So what they do is they take time together. They put together little goodie baskets with snacks and waters and things like that. And they go by some of the local hospitals to the emergency room, waiting room. And, and they bring these to these families. And they pray for them. And sometimes the families are up for them praying with them. Sometimes you pray after you leave the room. But I just thought it was such a great example of it, looking together as a family of how do we not just have a cozy, comfortable day for ourselves, but how do we together even enter into uncomfortable situations to bring grace and peace? Gosh, that's beautiful. There's one opportunity, or actually two opportunities, that I'd love to throw out to us because they're things I really think we could get after as a church, two things we could really get behind. We have two missionary partners who are getting really close to having enough support to go out on the field. 
One of them you know of is EJ and Alicia Marquez. They're looking to head out to Southeast Asia in the spring for the first time to work with a group of people that even 2,000 years after Jesus came still haven't heard about it yet. We've asked them, they're right about 80% in their support, and we've asked them as they're sending church to wait till they're 100% because we know how distracting it can be for missionaries to finally get on the field and try to learn language and culture and still try to raise support back home. So they're waiting until they get to that 100%. On the other hand, we've also got the Shearer family. About three weeks ago, you saw Thomas Shearer up here preaching. They're looking to re-raise their support to go back to the Nagi people in Indonesia where they brought the gospel a couple years ago. And we got to be a part of that as a church. Like there is a young church of Nagi brothers and sisters of ours that are there seeking to follow Jesus. And the Shears are looking to get back there with their partners to continue to train and disciple those leaders with the vision that hopefully they can take this gospel to other villages nearby. The shearers as well are about at 80%. They both are looking for about 20% of their support. And understand this, guys. Missions work isn't cheap. It it often costs more money to keep a missionary on the field than it costs most of us to live here in Simi Valley. It's expensive work. But I will say this. It's not nearly as costly as it was for Jesus to make himself poor in order to bring us grace. And more than 2,000 years later, there's still people who haven't heard that. This is worth sacrificing for. I can't think of a better way for us to celebrate Christmas in the true spirit of Christmas than to sacrifice what we might keep for ourselves to help these missionaries get to 100%. Like, we could do it, guys. Think about this. Both missionaries are looking for about 20% of their, uh, their needs, which is, uh, equals about $1,200 a month for, for each of them. Now, if you want to make me uncomfortable, ask me to do math in front of people. But I thought through this before. Let me see if this makes sense to you. Each needs $1,200 a month. That means if 100 families or individuals committed to give $12 a month to each of them, that would do it. If 50 families committed to give $24 a month to each of them, that would do it. Guys, we could do this. We could fully supply their need so they can be there fully devoted to making disciples. At the end of the service, there's going to be some people representing the Marquezes and the Shears. I think Shears will be here this service. The Marquezes will be here next service. I would ask you, seriously consider if this is a way that you could model the self-giving love of Jesus by helping these people get where the gospel hasn't been yet. Like, just looking in this room right now, we have the resources to meet their need. Let's do it, guys. I would highly recommend that to you. I know some of you are going, Jeesh, man, just a couple weeks ago, you asked us to give to Dollar Days, and we did. And some of you guys went over the top in giving to that as well. And I just want to say thank you. Like, I love being the pastor of a church that is known for generosity, I love that. I think that honors God when we do that. And I would say, let's keep going. Let's keep looking for opportunities to go out of our way to be gracious. Because that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. This isn't a command. This isn't a guilt trip. This is a call to joy. To let our joy in the grace that God has shown us propel us to joyfully share what he's given with others. That's the true spirit of Christmas. Amen? I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and we're going to sing a song about joy being to the world, that the earth might receive her king, and there are people on earth who don't know Jesus is king.
So keep this in mind as you do this. But let me say one thing as the band comes up here. If you're here this morning and you're a follower, of, and you're not a follower of Jesus, then before you go out there and sign up and, and to give and things like that, let me, understand, let me make this very clear. The greatest thing that you could do to celebrate Christmas this year is not to give, but to receive. Jesus Christ is God who became a man to rescue you because you are not okay on your own. There is no way that you can make up for the wrong things that you've done. It is not a matter of doing good deeds to counterbalance your bad deeds. Your sin separates you from God and there's nothing that you can do about it. But Jesus has done something about it. He has made himself poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. doesn't matter how much money or influence or power you have in this life. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you are poor in the only way that ultimately matters. But you can receive that gift today. You can receive Jesus as king and begin a relationship of following him as king. If you want to talk to somebody about what that looks like, we'll have some pastors and leaders up at the prayer room. If you came with a friend that knows Jesus, you can also just turn to them and say, would you explain this whole thing to me? I am all for pop quizzing our people. Do you know how to share the good news of Jesus? But thank you so much for being with us this morning. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that though you were rich for our sake, you made yourself poor so that we, through your poverty, might become rich, not in money, but rich in grace and kindness and whatever riches we have, big or little, Lord, I pray that we would use them to make the grace that you've shown us known to others. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.